Amen. Thank you, Joe. Good morning, Grace Hill. I hope every one of you are doing well. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Grace Hill Church, and if this is your first time here. I just want to welcome you. We are glad you're here. I'd love to be able to speak with you after the service. I uh, hope you had a great 4th of July, and uh, just wanted to let you know if any of you are um, watching the uh, soccer game on your phone, you just let us know when there's a score. And um, I, I appreciate you being here uh, as our uh, women's national team plays for the championship. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can open there. We'll read that in a few minutes. And as always, it is completely fine to use your phone app uh, to read the scriptures, or uh, we'll also have the scriptures uh, on the screen behind me as well. Uh, I wanted to begin this morning by asking all of us a question, um, and, he, and here it is. When, when someone says that they follow Jesus or that they are a follower of Jesus, what do they mean by that? What does that actually mean? Uh, is this a statement about their belief system? Uh, is this a statement about the way they order their life and their behavior? Uh, is this a statement about the social circles they run in? Or does this statement actually have practical meaning or is it just more abstract, theoretical? I follow Jesus. Uh, I'll never forget this uh, one conversation I had years ago. I was the college pastor over at McLean Bible uh, a long time ago. And we were doing a summer Bible study. So we had a bunch of college students who went to our church, but were away for the school year back home. And so we were doing a Bible study. And actually, coincidentally, we're, we are studying the book of James, just like we're studying now in our summer Bible study here at Grace Hill Church. And if you've been coming to that study that we're doing, one of the things that we've been teaching is that the main point of the book of James is to teach us that following Jesus will change your entire life. That if you're truly following Jesus, there's not one part of your life that it will not impact. That's what James tries to teach us. And so uh, I was teaching this same thing to these college students way, way back then. And, and after one of the uh, Bible studies, this young lady came up to me and uh, she wanted to talk. And so uh, this is what she literally said to me, all right? I, I promise you I'm not exaggerating this. All right, so she says this. She goes, so I, I grew up following Jesus, and uh, I consider myself a, a follower of Jesus, but I, I just finished my freshman year of college, and uh, I partied a lot during that freshman year. And when I go back for my sophomore year, I'm, I'm going to keep doing that. That was a lot of fun. And so uh, the problem is, though, I've been telling people at school that I follow Jesus, but I know that a true follower of Jesus would not party in the way that I've been partying. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. And so here's my question. So this is what you want to know. Should I stop telling people that I'm a follower of Jesus? Because I don't want to misrepresent Jesus to, and all of the people who follow him. But I'm not going to stop partying. So what do you think I should do? And so I love college students. They are the most honest people you, just, you don't have to cut through anything, right? It just gets, gets straight to the point. Love it. And so I, I said, hold on, just give me a second. Let me just process the question. And uh, I said, all right, just to, just to clarify, you are a follower of Jesus. Yes, I am. Okay. But you don't actually want to follow Jesus. 
You feel you should stop identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus because you, you don't want to follow Jesus. That's what you're saying, right? And she goes, well, I am a follower of Jesus, though. But I feel I should stop telling people that because I know that what I'm doing doesn't represent what it really means to follow Jesus. And I just looked at her and I said, I think you're wrestling with this because your conscience and the Holy Spirit inside of you is telling you that your life is not congruent with your faith. And I think you need to realize something right now. You have a choice. You have to say no to something. And you're either going to say no to your Savior or you're going to say no to your sinful desires. But you cannot say yes to both. And, and as I think about this conversation that I had with this young lady, it's easy to, to kind of laugh at her because she was so brutally honest with what she was wrestling with. But I think we all struggle with the same question. We just don't articulate it as plainly and honestly as she did. We want to say yes to following Jesus, but at the same time, we also want to say yes to all the things in our life that would be incongruent with following Jesus. And we don't wanna to have to say no to one of them. And this morning, we're gonna be getting into our sermon series, King Jesus, but we're gonna be getting into the heart of this sermon series. Because this is a series that is all about what it means to submit our entire lives to Jesus as our king. And this morning, we're gonna to begin to explore what it truly looks like to follow Jesus in every single area of our life. Uh, if you've been coming and been uh, a part of this series so far, you know that what we've been doing is summarizing each and every one of our sermons with a particular theological statement, all right? And all theology is, is what we believe about God. So we've been putting together these simple statements about what we believe about God and in ourselves. And we've listed out all of those statements in your notes, in your bulletin. You'll find them there, um, along with the space to write uh, today's uh, statement. But if you've missed a lot of these sermons, I really encourage you to go to our podcast, our website, and, and get caught up on them. But we began this entire series with this statement. You'll see it on the screen behind me. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. And what we mean by that is we were created to bear the image of God. Our purpose, our design is to glorify, represent God. Let him be the center of our lives. And because this is our purpose and because this is our design, this is where we find true joy. But the second statement of our series was this. In sin, I have abused God, creation, in others in order to be the center of my story. The essence of sin is that we have rejected God, we've rejected the purpose that he created us for, and we've made ourselves the center of our lives at the expense of God and other people. And so therefore, we learn that God has banished us from his kingdom as he kicked out 
Adam and Eve from the garden. And so we spent the rest of the first chapter of this series uh, just talking about the implications of the fact that we've rejected our king. And what does that really mean? But now we're in the second chapter of our series. And we learned in this first statement of this series, of the second chapter here, this, that God is eager to restore me into his kingdom. God is eager to be gracious and merciful, to redeem us, to fundamentally change our hearts, restore us into the kingdom. And so what God does is he sends his son Jesus to do the work of restoring us back to his kingdom. And that's what we learned about last week. This was last week's statement. Jesus gives of himself to forgive me. That Jesus pays the cost of our sin against God And through Jesus, God the Father is able to forgive us. So we're now justified in the sight of God, made right with God. Our sin is no longer counted against us. And we are now welcomed back into the kingdom of God. And so this morning, here's what I want us to see. That when Jesus gives of himself, he doesn't just do it to forgive us. That is how he's able to forgive us, is by giving of himself. But I also want us to see that Jesus gives of himself to show us the way of the kingdom. And that is today's statement, if you want to write that in our notes. Jesus gives of himself to show me the way of the kingdom. To show me what it truly looks like to follow Jesus. Through the life and the death of Jesus, we are given an example of what it means to live according to God's kingdom. To say yes to Jesus and no to everything else in our life that doesn't align with that. To live with God as the center of our story. And so to dig into that, I want us to study Mark chapter 10 together. Uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, specifically verses 35 to 45, because this passage in Mark 10 is a moment where Jesus is crystal clear with his disciples and with us about why he came to be with us and how that should impact the way we live our lives if we were to follow him. All right, so how do you follow someone? Well, you follow their example, you do what they do. What Jesus is saying is, I came so that you would do what I did. All right, and that's what we're going to see in. Uh, Mark 10 here, a little bit of context for you. In verses 32 to 34, right before the passage we're gonna read, we learn that Jesus and his disciples started to walk towards Jerusalem, their journey towards Jerusalem, because there Jesus would be arrested and tortured and executed and eventually resurrected. And in these verses before, Jesus tells his disciples that this is exactly what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. He tells them multiple times, We're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be executed, and then I will rise again. He tells his disciples this. But there's two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. Okay, I like James and John. But James and John. Then this is not James, the brother of Jesus. This is a different James, one of his disciples. When Jesus tells them that they're about to go towards Jerusalem so he can do, he can be arrested, die, and be raised again, I don't think they fully grasped what they meant. And they somehow saw an opportunity for themselves, an opportunity for them to exploit. 
And so they wanted to be a significant part of what Jesus was about to do. But you have to understand something about James and John. When uh, Jesus called them to be his disciples, this is back in Mark 3, you can read this. Jesus gives them a nickname. And that nickname is Bonerges. Now, your Bible probably translates that as the sons of thunder. Uh, Other translations, other ways of translating it are the loud ones. Um, or the uh, other one could also be the hot-tempered pair. All right, so these guys just, you know, they had a big mouth, and they had a hot temper, and um, there are many uh, examples of their temper in the Gospels if you read them. Um, But this is James and John, so just understand these are the guys we're dealing with here. So let's read our text, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up. It says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Thunder, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you, Thunder? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. We want to be in prominent positions in your kingdom. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For all of Jesus' ministry with these 12 guys following him, he had been telling them that the reason he came was to bring the kingdom of God. Right? And and that's what we just said. God is eager to restore us to his kingdom. And so he sends Jesus to do the work of restoring us to his kingdom. And and when Jesus tells his disciples that they need to go to Jerusalem so that he can be arrested and die and, and resurrected, James and John probably don't fully understand what's going on there, but they probably think that this whole bringing of the kingdom of God, that that's about to happen. And so because they are the sons of thunder, They want to make sure they are first in line when it comes to whatever prominent positions Jesus might be handing out in his new kingdom. All right, it's kind of like presidential primary season uh, when you have all of these candidates just beating each other up because they want to be the nominee. And then eventually someone gets the nomination and they all cozy up to him. Why? Because they want prominent positions in the administration and in the cabinet. 
This is what James and John are doing. They want to be prominent in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in verse 38, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? And they say, we are able. Again, they have no idea what Jesus is saying. At the first reading of this text, we have no idea what Jesus is saying. Right? We have to dig into this. So what is he saying when he talks about the cup and the baptism? What does he mean by that? Well, if you survey the Bible, one of the things that you, you see is this word cup is used a lot. And it's usually used as a way of explaining or an analogy for a something that God bestows on someone. So it could be blessing. You get a cup of blessing. Or the Psalms often talk about our cup of salvation. But another place we see this is when Jesus prays to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is hours before he's going to go to the cross. And he's anxious because he's about to suffer and die in our place and take on the wrath of God in our place. And he prays to God and he says, God, if, if there's any way, could you take this cup from me? But, but not my will, your will. When, when, when Jesus refers to the cup, what he's referring to is God's calling upon him. This calling, his will upon him to die in our place, to come and, and bear our sins and our iniquity on the cross. This is the cup that God had for Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, are you willing to take this cup? And when he speaks of his baptism, he's talking about his death. That when Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to be buried in the ground and then three days later rise again. That's why when we baptize people, we do full immersion. We put you all the way underwater. Why? Because it symbolizes this idea that when we go underneath the baptismal waters, we are dying along with Jesus. Our old sinful self is going into the grave, but then it's being raised again to new life out of the waters, a new person forgiven. That's what baptism symbolizes, and this is what Jesus is saying. So when he refers to his cup and when he refers to the baptism, he's referring to his suffering and his death. Jesus is referring to the cost that he will pay to restore us to the kingdom of God. And I promise you, this is not what James and John had in mind when they said they were willing and able to drink from the same cup and endure the same baptism. You want to know what James and John had in mind? Jesus gives us a hint in verses 42 and 43. When Jesus says, Jesus called them to him and he said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus says, look at all the kingdoms of the world, all the nations. In these nations, if you wanna be great, it means dominance, it means authority, it means power, position, the ability to be greater than all of the other people, the ability to tell people what to do. And when James and John imagined the kingdom of God, they imagined a nationalistic kingdom. A kingdom like the other nations, but this time, Jesus and his high officials were now in charge. And they would liberate Israel from the Roman Empire. And James and John would have high positions in Jesus' cabinet. 
See, although Jesus had told his disciples at least three times prior to this that in Jerusalem, I'm, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to die and then I'll be resurrected. Although he kept saying that, they, they never quite took Jesus literally. Jesus wasn't headed to Jerusalem to establish a nation state. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to establish the spiritual kingdom of God. And the way of God's kingdom is nothing like the ways of the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus looks at James and John in verse 39. And he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And Jesus is not saying that James and John will have to die on the cross too to be restored to God's kingdom. That's a cup that only Jesus can drink from. That's a cup that's only he can do. He's the only one who can atone for our sins. But what Jesus is saying is that laying down one's life for God and others is the way of the kingdom of God. To follow Jesus means to follow him to the cross, down into the grave, and then up in his resurrection. Because, see, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. God created us to want to achieve greatness, but greatness is not measured by climbing the ladder of power in this world. Greatness is measured by lowering yourself so that God and others might be elevated. Jesus puts it in really plain terms in verses 43 to 45. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice how Jesus uses his life as an example. It's one thing for James and John and, and all of us as fallen humanity uh, to think that we deserve greatness in, in God's kingdom because of our good works. But, but Jesus is entirely different. Jesus is the son of God. And he is completely without sin. So yes, Jesus, even in his actual position and his actual righteousness, doesn't use it for himself. Paul makes this really clear in Philippians 2. He says this in verse 6 and 7. He says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus lays down his life for us so that we, people who have abused God and others in order to be the center of our story may be forgiven and redeemed and restored to God's kingdom. Jesus came to serve, not claim his rights. And in doing so, he has demonstrated for us the way of the kingdom. So here's what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to lay down our desires and our rights to love God and others. I wanna say that again. To follow Jesus means to lay down 
our desires and our rights to love God and others. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. But in sin, I have abused God, creation, and others to be the center of my story. And Jesus has come to redeem me from that. Which means he not only forgives me, but he leads me into a new way of living, namely, no longer being the center of my story. We live in a culture today that says that what it means to be truly and authentically you is to demand your rights and desires, to celebrate your rights and your desires, and to cut out anything or any person who gets in the way of your rights and your desires. We live in a culture that is constantly preaching to us that whatever your heart desires, you're entitled to. Because your desires are what is most authentically you. That's the theology the culture preaches. You are most authentically you when you get what you want. And it would be wrong for you or anyone to deprive you of your desires. Our culture preaches that to us every minute of every single day. You're entitled to what your heart desires sexually. In fact, our culture would say that it's actually now your identity. Your sexual desires are who you are. And anyone or anything who would challenge that is an enemy that needs to be cut out. You're entitled to a wife or a husband who will fulfill your desire and complete you. And when they stop doing that, if they ever did, then divorce is acceptable. You're entitled to the American dream of building a life of wealth and significance. And when God calls you to lay that down for his sake and his mission and his church, that's too radical. You're entitled to curate the practices of your faith, to take just as much time and energy as you're willing to give. And when the Bible or the church calls you to a faith that impacts every area of your life, man, pull back. You need rest and self-care, right? You're entitled to formulate your own thoughts and theology about God. And when God disagrees with you, of course there's something wrong with God and the Bible, not me. And so here is how this sermon, this culture is preaching to us, seeps into our faith. So you have Christians who believe God's word. And they want to order their life by God's word. But they also have been exposed every single day to this sermon from our culture telling us that we're entitled to our heart's desires. And, and what happens is we, we read this, this word and, and it's going to challenge our heart's desires. And it will challenge the sermon that the culture is preaching to us. And so God's going to tell us in here things like, hey, here's how I created sexuality and why it's beautiful and amazing and good and, and right. And here's how sin is going to twist that and that's going to be destructive. Or, or here's how you should think about your money or here's how you should think about your marriage or here's how you should treat your neighbors and, and on and on and on. And that might challenge what I want. And so I have a choice. Do I believe the word of God or do I believe the culture? 
But what happens in Christianity is we don't want to have to choose between the two. We want to say yes to both. I want to be able to believe the message of our culture that says I'm entitled to what I desire, but I don't want to also reject my faith. So we start to compromise. Maybe we'll say that, actually come to think of it, there are things in here that we can pull out, and that would be okay. A lot of churches nowadays are doing that, so we can just pull things out as we desire. Or, or maybe we'll do some interpretive, exegetical gymnastics with the text, figure out a way to bend things and bring in history and culture and all this stuff to, to angle it to what I want it to say. Or we'll just ignore certain parts of Scripture and try not to expose our conscience to it. Or like the young lady I spoke of in the beginning, we'll try and convince ourselves that we actually can have both. We want to say yes to following Jesus and we want to say yes to the world. And here's what I want all of us to see this morning. That our culture is also preaching to us a theology. And here's how you could summarize its theology if you want to give it a statement. It's my fallen self is my most authentic self. I am most free when I can bear my own image and I don't have to bear God's. I have the right to have all the desires in my heart fulfilled. And sin is when any person or anything gets in my way. I am the center of my story. This is the way of the world. But this is not the way of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, we follow Jesus by laying down our desires, laying down our rights in love of God and others. In our marriages, we, we lay down our demands and our rights and our desires and we become a servant of our spouse. In the home, we lay down our expectations of our kids. We become servants of our children that they may thrive. We lay down the idea that money will buy us security and happiness. We put it all before God and we submit it to him and we say, God, what is your will for the money that you have entrusted me with? We lay down our rights and desires so we can love our church family well. We lay down our rights and our desires to love our neighbors well. We lay down our rights and desires to submit to the word of God, even when I struggle sometimes to agree. And here's the thing. If it weren't for Jesus showing us how, doing it for us, laying down his rights, his desires, literally giving of his life, where would we be? It is through Jesus laying down his privilege, not flaunting his privilege that we're forgiven of our sin. Think of the privileges of being the son of God. It is through Jesus laying down his privilege, not flaunting his privilege and defending and demanding his privilege that we're adopted into God's family, made a child of God and given a place in God's kingdom for eternity. The gospel is good news to us at great cost 
to our Savior. And now we are called to follow Jesus into those costs by laying down our privilege and our rights and our desires, not demanding them in order to love God and others. Following Jesus comes at a cost. And and just like James and John, we can sometimes come to Jesus and only have our sights set on the benefits of the kingdom. God, what can you give me? We're only concerned with what we get out of our faith. But Jesus tells James and John and all of us, if you want the benefits, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must become a servant. If you want to find your life, you actually have to lose it and trust it to me. And you might be thinking to yourself, why would I sign up for this? Why would I submit myself to a life of laying down everything I want to follow Jesus? It's an honest question. I think all of us wrestle with it. And it's the same question that kicked off the fall in the garden. But the truth is, as we learned during the first chapter of our series, there is no joy when I am the center of my story. Living a life demanding your rights and your desires has brought a world full of brokenness and pain and anxiety and stress. And the great paradox of the Christian faith is that there is everlasting joy and peace and soul fulfillment when we submit our entire lives to King Jesus. Because you are your most authentic self as an image bearer of God and as a child of his kingdom. And that's exactly what we're gonna be focusing on next Sunday. There is everlasting joy when we follow Jesus. But for this morning, the question that I want us to wrestle with is what theology is my life organized around? Is it the theology of the world that tells us that that we are the center of our story and we're entitled to our desires? Or is it the theology of Jesus that tells us to lay down our rights and our desires in love of God and others? I want us just to take a few moments now. I wanna pray for us and I want us to reflect on that before we come and take communion together. Let's pray, reflect, and sing, thinking about this now. God, in these moments right now, before we sing to you, before we come to the communion table, I pray that your spirit would just help us to convict our hearts of the areas in our life where we wanna say yes to both you and the world. God, we all have them. God, I just pray in this moment that you would show us why there is so much more joy in laying down our desires, laying down the things that we want, laying down our rights and following you. So Holy Spirit, just in this moment right now, 
would you just help us to reflect on this? Take a minute, reflect on that before we sing a song together.
I love that song. That's so good. Um, you can have a quick seat. Um, there, you know, there's an important distinction that needs to be made. And that is the distinction between being welcomed into the kingdom of God and living according to the kingdom of God. We are not welcomed into the kingdom of God by living according to the kingdom of God. We are welcomed into the kingdom of God through Jesus and what he has done. He went first. He gave of himself first. And it's the more that we understand that, the more that we trust that, the more that we throw our lives upon the cross, that we begin to understand what it truly means to live according to the kingdom of God. You know, there's a verse I wanted to encourage us with this morning as we come to the communion table, and that's this. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 will be on the screen behind me. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I, my old, sinful, fallen self that was alienated from God and that was banished from the kingdom of God has been crucified with Christ. My sin all went on the cross, past, present, future. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have his righteousness. When, when God sees me, he sees his son, Jesus. And so the life that I live now in the flesh, this life right here, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And one of the ways that we live by faith in the Son of God is we have to feast on the gospel. We have to be reminded of what Christ has done for us to welcome us into his kingdom. And then at that point, we learn to live according to his kingdom because we know that's where our joy is and we know that brings glory to the Father. But one of the things that we're told to do in the scriptures as we come to the table is we're told to examine ourselves. Take a few minutes and to examine where in your life is the way that you're living incongruent with what you believe about Jesus. We all have it. And we should take some time. We should confess that. We should name it. We should bring it before God. And we don't do that because we need to get ourselves all cleaned up before we come to the table. No, we do that. We get all that junk out and we bring it to the table because it's there that we realize and that we're reminded of what Christ has done to forgive us, that all of that junk was crucified with Christ. And so we come to the table and we take the bread and we break it and we're reminded of the broken body of Jesus, the cup that he took, drank for us. He took on the wrath of God and so that we don't have to. And we take the cup and we drink it and we're reminded of the blood that he shed to cleanse us from our sins. And so what I want us to do is I want us to just take a moment and let's examine ourselves as we were just doing. Get all that junk, bring it to the table. And as you taste the cracker and as you taste the juice, I just want you to be reminded that Christ has taken care of all of that. You are welcomed into his kingdom. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus yet, I just, I wanna encourage you to sit in your seat and pray and ask God, God, if you're there, would you reveal all this to me? Would you help me to know if this is true or not? Because maybe this morning could be a morning 
where you could come and you could pray with one of our prayer ministers who's up front or someone that you came with to trust upon him, Jesus. And to trust Jesus with your sins and to say, God, my, myself, all of my sin, I want that crucified with you on the cross and I wanna live with Christ in me. I wanna live that way now. And if that's where you're at this morning, maybe this morning could be the first time you take communion after you trust in him. We're gonna have prayer ministers up front at the end of the service and if you'd like to pray with someone about that, we'd love to spend some time with you. But for right now, just take a few minutes, examine yourself. Get that junk and bring it to the table. Take some bread, take some juice, go back to your seat, take the elements whenever you're ready, but be encouraged that you have been welcomed into the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Take a few moments.